Welcome to the Fair Observer podcast in collaboration with the IFOR Research Center, IRC, at the Osaka School of International Public Policy. My name is Haruko Sato, co-director of the IRC and today's moderator. This podcast series, Implications of Ukraine on Asia, is part of the IRC project, Peace and Human Security in Asia, towards a meaningful Japan-Korea partnership sponsored by the Korea Foundation. This episode, India and Japan, is the second in the series of three episodes. We have Dr. Satu Limeye, Vice President of the East-West Center, Dr. Taku Tamaki, Lecturer in International Relations at Loughborough University, and Atul Singh, Founder, CEO, and Editor-in-Chief of Fair Observer to have an in-depth discussion about India and Japan and how they are impacted by the recent rupture in the international system brought on by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So India and Japan are partners in a relatively new quad, the quadrilateral security dialogue between Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. This was formed in part as a reaction to the growing influence of China but the Quad also expresses a convergence of new interests among the four states that have stakes in the stability of the Indo-Pacific region. The Russian invasion of Ukraine put India in a tight spot, while Japan acted more or less in line with other G7 countries. However, more lies behind this facade of different responses. It's really not simply a matter of taking sides. And this war is, in my view, essentially a European security issue rooted in European history, but with implications for the future order and perhaps the UN system. But Japan and India are Asian powers navigating a modern world of Western design. But historically, the conversation for these two countries with the West has been and still is complex, nuanced, and often in a gray zone. And it prefers to avoid a Manichaean world view. And the quad is still in an evolutionary phase. And I think it needs to stand for something rather than stand against something. So this, I'd like to start with uh, thinking about how important are India and Japan in this sort of evolutionary process, not only of the Quad, but the Quad sort of gaining significance in the sort of international system and also for the Indo-Pacific region. So the starting point I would like is to, to have get, to gain some historical perspective. And so here I would like to invite uh, the speakers, particularly starting with Satu, about how sort of experiences and encounters with the West, particularly not just in your case, not just with India or Japan, uh, inform the way that each have cut their own modern identity and how their sort of ideas and ideologies have shaped their nation state identities and what are the continuities and changes that could determine the future course for the two. 
So I'd like to start with uh, Satu and then go to uh, Taku and then finally with uh, Atu. Well, good morning and, and thank you for the opportunity, Haruko and colleagues, to join this podcast on the implications of Ukraine on Asia. Um, and, and particularly, thank you for having an American perspective on India and Japan uh, on this issue. Um, look, I'd put it a couple ways. First, let me start from an American perspective of America and then move to Japan and India very briefly. First, uh, we all know the provenance of the United States as a European uh, if you will, originally a European colony and um, a sort of transformation um, into something that is increasingly articulated by our leadership and uh, less so by public at large, which is the identity of the United States as a, as a Pacific nation. Um, and I think that's sometimes forgotten. And uh, you can frame it any way you want, but um, the fact is we've moved across this continent over 200 plus years uh, through a combination of war, treaties, expansion, settlement, etc. Um, you all know the history into the Pacific. And in this century, we've increasingly articulated the United States as an Indo-Pacific nation. The relationships with India and Japan predate this Pacific identity, but clearly inform it. The India case is less direct because it came essentially through UK and through the British Empire. But with Japan, it was much more direct in the search for coaling stations and relationships from the mid 19th century, um, um, uh, including the opening of Japan. And that relationship is obviously long contested and um, uh, was, uh, was contested and now has become a long time uh, ally since uh, 1945. With India, the relationship is just developing it has only been recently included into the Indo-Pacific categorization for the first 70 years of Indian independence and the 70 plus years of the post-war period. The United States did not see India as a part of what we would consider East Asia. It's only with the Indo addition to the Pacific that India and Japan have become, if you will, the two parentheses or the two sides of an American reconception of Asia. And I think that's very important to understand. And so in some sense, the evolution of India-Japan relations within this framework has been both facilitated by and abetted by, um, in my view, um, not only decisions in Delhi and Tokyo, of course, but by a facilitation uh, opportunity uh, by the United States, which has made it possible for these three to have more, ha have more and closer relations, including most recently with the addition of the Quad. So let me stop there as a opening, um, a opening comment. Thanks, thank you, Satu. So next, um, we turn to Taku. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me on this program. Um, in terms of historical dimensions, I think Japan has uh, has been since. Uh, the Meiji Restoration has been trying to socialize itself into the Western international state system, and I think it has, um, albeit with uh, deadly consequences in 1945. And even after the war, I think uh, what we're seeing is Japan still wanting to be part of that sort of Western international system. I think it's very comfortable being a member of the G7, and it knows it has the, um, as a US ally, um, it has its commitment. So 
perhaps that sort of that sort of stance and historical experience um, to a certain extent explains the current stance with respect to Ukraine. Um, I think it, in terms of Ukraine, um, the issue at the moment, um, it's, I think it's one thing to say that Ukraine is Ukraine crisis, Ukraine war is very much a European war, European crisis. But I have the feeling that when the Japanese leaders, Japanese policymakers look at Ukraine, they see China and Taiwan, which is very much within the purview. Um, and one of the interesting things over the past several months, and this predates the Ukraine war, is this Japan's attention on Taiwan. And it seems as if it's sort of this idea of Japan's defense periphery has come a full circle. It started out with the Far East, which was about Korean Peninsula and Taiwan, then moved to the H Pacific to talk about the sea lines of communication towards the South China Sea, and then the surrounding areas, the more situational perspective. Now we have the Indo Pacific, the confluence of uh, the Pacific and Indian Ocean stretching to East Africa, perhaps beyond if you think about uh, Japan's European partners, United Kingdom, Germany, Netherlands and France, they're talking about the Pacific. But now um, with the current situation, and again, it predates the Ukraine war, um, Japan has been talking about Taiwan, the crisis um, on the Taiwan Straits, in the Taiwan Straits, so the language of defense periphery has come back to Taiwan. So it's very interesting in a way that um, Ukraine, the Ukrainian war seems to be really emphasizing um, the issue of China and Taiwan. Abe has been talking recently about Japan's capability, Japan needs to enhance its capabilities to be able to hit um, enemy uh, bases. Um, so I think what Ukraine does is it's not something that is far away in the European space. I think uh, there is a sense that what they're seeing, what the Japanese are seeing in Ukraine is very much what could easily happen in its very neighborhood, as it were, Taiwan and China. And I'll stop there for now. Thank you. Thank you, Tamtaku. That's, that's actually very interesting about the full circle. Um, so now I'd um, like to turn to Atu. The Indian uh, experience uh, with the Western system is obviously uh, as complicated as Japan's, uh, though it is uh, a different one. Uh, remember, India was uh, ruled by the British. So although we are a common law country, there is a huge uh, reservation. Uh, there are huge reservations against the West. I remember India was ruled by first by the British East India Company. And India turned socialist after independence. And India was uh, a de facto Soviet ally. Uh, under Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, uh, India weird extremely left uh, during certain periods. And uh, uh, she amended the constitution and declared India to be a socialist country. Um, and even today, in the preamble of the constitution of India, we are a socialist country, although although we've had reforms in 1991, once Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, so for India, there's always been uh, huge reservations against the West and uh, India is not a revisionist power uh, like Russia or China, but India certainly uh, wants uh, uh, an evolution of the international order, which it sees as frozen in 1945. Um, India has grave reservations vis-a-vis uh, -vis the US going back to the 1953 Iran um, coup conducted by the CIA, the intervention 
in Vietnam, um, and uh, any old Indian uh, officer will tell you, and that includes my father who fought in the 71 war, uh, that uh, will tell you that uh, you cannot quite trust the Americans to come to our rescue. In fact, they sent a fleet against us in favor of a genocidal military dictatorship that was conducting rape as a weapon of war. Um, this, of course, refers to Bangladesh when Bangladesh was created in 1971. So a uh, reservation against the West is deep in the Indian psyche. And India sees the Ukraine war as far away. It doesn't affect us. It increases the price of our oil. India wants uh, peace because is, uh, peace would mean that it can get uh, uh, cheaper commodities. Uh, but uh, India cannot, uh, given its situation, given its history, given its need for both uh, military equipment and technology, go against Russia, the only reliable partner they've had militarily and the only backer in the United Nations on Kashmir that they have had consistently. So given that history, and given the fact that India has two nuclear neighbors, so geography and history dictate that India does not want to go against Russia. It sees this conflict as far away. It sees this conflict as a bit disturbing. It sees this as a part and parcel of uh, Western universalism. And uh, it sees it not through the eyes of, not through the prism of Taiwan, as Taku said, it sees it through the prism of Pakistan. It sees Ukraine as a breakaway region analogous to Pakistan that is moving closer and ever closer to the West and is defining itself against Russia. India doesn't want uh, to get into the fight. It gets, um, it gets uh, uh, military equipment actually from both Ukraine and Russia. It would much rather that they uh, that they just stop fighting and its spares were assured. Uh, but India is not going to jump in uh, on the sanctions bandwagon because it, then it will lose leverage in the oil market and the Gulf producers will, will ask uh, uh, any price and, and, and exploit India over a barrel. So India's view comes from, uh, as I said, history and geography, but also its economy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Atul. Um, that's... I think we've now have uh, three sort of different perspectives, but so too, um, I'd like to ask, uh, just moving on to the, the next question, but it's really related, but what changes are likely, if any, to India's and Japan's existing ties, alliances, entanglements as a result of Ukraine? But from you, I would like to hear about when you said that India and Japan are now the sort of brackets uh, to the new conception of this Indo-Pacific. And within the context of Quad, um, how comfortable or what, what do you see uh, as happening perhaps in, in the dynamics of the Quad uh, from the United US perspective? Thanks, uh, Haruko, for those questions. And thanks, colleagues, for those terrifically interesting um, responses. Um, I'd put it this way. Um, to get to your quad question. There are four areas of Japan-India um, intersection with the United States uh, in this framework. One is at the UN, where both India and Japan are, of course, full and 
outstanding members of the UN, but both outside the Permanent Security Council and both seek it. So they are, if you will, allied on the desire to be permanent Security Council members, uh, along with, as you know, the two other parties, uh, Germany and uh, South Africa, uh, in that quad, quad element of their, of their application. Second, they are both fully vested and integrated and implicated in the post-1945 international order, uh, but in quite different ways in the sense that I would characterize it as India being somewhat more reformist and revisionist driven and India being, uh, beg pardon, and Japan being more status quo and evolutionary driven. So that's two. The third is their relationship with the US, which I would characterize as follows. India seeks a closer relationship with the United States outside an alliance system and within a multilateral system. Japan seeks some autonomy from the United States within an alliance system and predicated on a unipolar system. And fourth and finally, I would say that how this implicates the Quad is as follows. The Quad three parties, with the exception of India, are largely convergent on UN international order and relations with the US, but India is the one outlier because it does not seek an alliance. Hence, the Quad has been, to my mind, others may disagree, predicated on offering public goods to the region rather than explicitly a counterforce opportunity vis-a-vis -vis deterrence or forward posture or kinetic action vis-a-vis -vis any threats in the region. I think this is a significant difference, but you cannot understand that quad relationship and the complexities without, I believe, understanding the respective roles, particularly of the US, India, and Japan across those four quadrants. And needless to say, of course, Australia as well. But since we're not discussing Australia specifically today, uh, I'll just put that aside, but that's important too. So th those are my comments on how I would articulate the quad as it emanates from those first four relationships. Thank you. Thank you, Suchu. Um, that's, that's very, um, I won't comment. Um, so now I'm turning to Taku uh, to, uh, with the same question that I asked Suchu about what are the the, the changes that are likely to to in uh, particularly to Japan, Japan's existing uh, ties, alliances, and entanglements as a result of Ukraine, and bearing in mind uh, what Satu just said about America's perspective and, also, uh, and the function of the Quad. Yes, I think one of I suppose the most striking elements of Japan's reaction. Uh, with respect to Ukraine is it's almost a complete rupture with Russia. Um, it's sort of um, reluctant, reluctance to impose full sanctions on Russia after Crimea, that seems to have evaporated. Um, Japan is dependent on natural gas from Russia, perhaps not as much as uh, Western Europeans, but it's still a significant amount. 
And that seem, Japan seems to be foregoing that, although they're not withdrawing from Saharin too, I think, but I think the Japanese government, I'm sure, is quite aware of what is going to happen. Um, Japan has listened to what Putin said about Japan being a very unfriendly um, state. So there is a rupture with, with Russia. And of course, the other side of this, the story is, of course, uh, Japan's focus on what the US is doing or not doing, perhaps, um, over Ukraine. And I'm sure the Japanese are looking very closely at the Biden administration, what it is doing, what it is not doing, and perhaps trying to sort of almost second guess what the Biden administration would have done or would have said uh, if something similar were to happen over the Taiwan Straits. Um, and I suppose the interesting thing is that Biden administration also seems to be saying on the one hand that they don't want to get involved in the Ukraine war, this is the way to start World War III, but this, what, what the Japanese might be hearing uh, about China might be a little bit different. So I'm not sure how Japan Japanese side would be reacting to this per se, but of course, um, you know, looking ahead to 2024, and not, not just 2024, but midterm elections, um, that is going to also affect the US administration, what Biden's able to do, what Biden won't be able to do, and plus what's going to happen after 2024. So I think Japan is very closely looking at the US administration. Um, the alliance is still very much the linchpin of Japanese foreign policy and its stance towards China. Um, but so on the one hand, you have the rupture with the United States, uh, no, United States rupture with Russia on the one hand and focusing on US administration on the other. And one final point about the Indo-Pacific, um, Japan's language of Indo-Pacific is interesting because it seems to have, the Japanese government seems to have convinced European partners to adopt the language. And I'm wondering, and I'm just, I don't have an answer or anything at this point, but I'm sort of wondering what the European partners would do with the language of Indo-Pacific. Will that evaporate as a result of Ukraine? Um, the Germany, the Netherlands and France have also adopted the language of Indo-Pacific. German Navy was in the Pacific training with the Japanese. Uh, will that continue? Or because all of what's happening in Ukraine, that language will disappear. And that might actually affect uh, Japan's thinking on the Indo-Pacific. So I'll stop here for now. That's, that's a very, very interesting uh, point about the, the Europeans doing uh, what they will do with the Indo-Pacific language. Um, so finally, I'd like to turn to Atul about uh, the same question about um, what changes are likely, if any, to India's uh, existing ties and uh, alliance, well, entanglements um, as a result of Ukraine. For India, a lot will change. And uh, I heard Satu's brilliant uh, delineation of, uh, of the various aspects of this question. And I agree with almost everything he said, uh, except the use of the term revisionist. India does not see itself as a revisionist power. And uh, India is an evolutionary power. Does it um, broadly agree with the UN? Yes. Does it send troops to serve in UN missions? Yes, actually a very large number. Does it provide a large number of staff in the UN? Just go to the UN and see the number of Indians who work there and some very talented uh, people. So India certainly buys into the UN, but there is also, it's complicated. India also sees the United Nations as a place where they were lied to over Kashmir. India also sees the limitations of the United Nations because in 2003, uh, 
the US went into Iraq, something which was against Indian interests because India imports its oil from Iraq. So India is, uh, you know, is a country which wants um, the UN to succeed, but it wants the US to be more democratic, to represent its national interests and not to be frozen in 1945. Now, coming to what happens now, well, India is looking at uh, what's going on. And, and I've written a very long article with Christopher Schell explaining all of this in Fair Observer. I've also written a very long article on Putin, but that's an aside. Um, India is looking at this with great nervousness because number one, um, India will have to navigate uh, or rather walk a tightrope between Russia and the US. Investment comes from the US. India exports to the US. India sends a large number of students to the US. Um, Indian executives are CEOs of Microsoft, Twitter, um, IBM, Adobe, Acrobat, and, uh, and Alphabet, not to mention, which is better known as Google. Um, so India has very close ties um, with the US. Uh, it has social ties, it has economic ties, it has geopolitical ties, uh, increasingly military ties. Uh, there are joint exercises. We have uh, China on the Northeastern side and Pakistan on the Northwestern side. And India sees um, particularly a relationship with the United States Navy as essential to keeping a free and open Pacific. These are shared interests. Now, having said that, India also gets its equipment from Russia. More importantly, India gets spares and technology transfer from Russia. Also, Russian equipment is cheap. The S-400s uh, are very good for fulfilling India's strategic needs and military needs. And the equivalent from France or the US or any other country um, is more expensive. As a poor country with a tight budget uh, where, and uh, where politicians are expanding the welfare state, both the Bharatiya Janata Party and the Aadmi Party. One is of course older, and the other is a recent party which has won the Punjab elections. Remember, India has many states, 28 states. Uh, they're both uh, promising better welfare. So there isn't an infinite pot of money to spend. And so India has to keep on the good side of Russia. And Russia is like family silver. India knows that it can count on Russia's backing uh, in uh, the UN. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the US is like a new Toyota that's come on the market and, and, and India wants it. But, uh, but uh, Russia is like the old beat up car you might need to drive your mom to the hospital. It's tried and tested. It's been uh, a source of support. Um, it, uh, you know, it is also a place that gives you leverage uh, when it comes to oil imports. Uh, because uh, if India was to say, oh, we join on the bandwagon, then uh, th they'd be in trouble. Now, there's another tiny little matter which, which uh, people forget. Uh, and it is important to remember is that India steers away from an alliance because India doesn't feel uh, it is treated as an equal partner. India feels that the end of the day, and this is a legacy of empire, 
America will fight for freedom for white people, but does not give a damn for colored people. In India, again and again, off the record, diplomats say this, soldiers say this, politicians say this. I talk to all my friends and they say this, and I mean people right at the top. And they say this, look, more people have died in the Tigray war in Ethiopia. It isn't even covered. America walked away from Afghanistan, leaving a mess on our doorstep. And now Afghanistan is not an issue. We sent 50,000 tons across the border through Pakistan to Afghanistan. So India sees this coverage of Ukraine also through the lens of racism. That is something not to forget. There is also another wrinkle. India is very nervous about the ideological left-leaning Democrats characterization of uh, the current ruling party as Hindu fascist. I know that's a term bandied around, but people point out, including opposition members, that look, India is largely a democracy and they just lost elections in Punjab despite putting all their efforts. India all said and done is a democracy and there isn't the same corresponding treatment in the media and sometimes even in the think tanks um, of Bangladesh or Pakistan that have followed a practice of ethnic cleansing. So India has a lot of uh, reservations about joining a Western alliance because it feels that A, number one, its strategic interests do not entirely align. B, it is not treated as an equal partner. And C, there is this fear at the political level that um, uh, the US might want some regime change. Now, this means that the Quad will be a loose alliance. It will provide public commons. And Satu was absolutely right. Australia, Japan, and, and the US are old allies. They're military allies. Um, the deal, AUKUS deal, just proved it. India, again, was upset that didn't know about the AUKUS deal. Therefore, India is moving closer to France. So India sees um, US, Australia, and Japan as vital, especially US and Japan, the Australians don't really count, uh, as vital to its long-term interests. But it's not going to join an alliance with them because it doesn't find the interests entirely convergent. Thank you, Abdul. Um, very, I think... I don't know if I should say this, but a lot of things, the reservations that you mentioned, the Indian reservations about the United States, um, I think Japan, behind closed doors, probably shares a lot of the similar kind of sentiments about being a junior ally uh, to the United States. I mean, this is, uh, this is almost a perennial um, a psychological issue, I think, where Japan's politics is also defined by um, these sort of uh, uh, mindsets and uh, experiences, actually. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to move on to the final question, but I think we can now sort of bring together ev what everybody said. Um, the final question was really about looking forward. Um, and originally I said a sort of the West West's takeaway from this Asian reaction, which is very different from the, the European reaction to uh, the Ukraine uh, war. Um, and 
what I find interesting is that NATO or Western Europe is finding this newfound solidarity over for Ukraine, this, you know, the purpose for NATO and so on. Whereas the, the rest of the world, and particularly Asia, the responses are and not just India and Japan, but they're all very different. And so starting with you again, Satu, um, how will the United States, as, as it reconceives or tries to move forward in, particularly in the context of uh, America's relations with China, which it has to move on in some direction, um, how will the uh, U.S. adjust to this uh, sort of, um, if not fragmented, but a very sort of complex landscape that's emerged in Asia, including some of these sort of uh, deep suspicion towards the United States or white people or the West? Um, and then I'd like to turn um, the comments to uh, Taku and Atu in response to what... Um, Situ's comment. Right. Well, uh, again, very interesting. And I haven't said much about Ukraine specifically, so let me say so now. Um, first, I don't mean to be um, um, uh, flippant, but I think it's too early to tell. Um, you know, drawing on, was it Mao's or Joe and Lai's comment about what did you think about the French Revolution? It's too early to tell. I mean, I think when Kissinger or Nixon asked him, I don't remember all the details, but the point being, I think it's a little too early to tell two months into this terrible crisis, um, horrible uh, Russian actions in Ukraine, uh, what the longstanding implications are, uh, may I say, not only for Europe, though the initial ones are very clear about uh, NATO alignment and European Union support and US-UK support, uh, let's see. Um, there are a lot of issues in U.S.-U.K. relation, uh, U.S.-Europe uh, relations, trade, high technology, um, cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, which uh, Professor Tamaki raised. There's lots of ongoing issues. But let's focus on Asia. Um, first is to remember that the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy was released on the 11th of February and Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th. So there was a deliberate and conscious effort to put the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy on the table and in front of the world in the midst of the ascending and intensifying Ukraine crisis. Second, it is very clear that one of the key issues that emanates out of the Ukraine crisis is the prospect specter, if you will, the horror of Sino-Russian alignment. Third, there is an issue which I would like to take slight issue with the notion of fragmented Asian response. Asia is a big place. And to be sure, we cannot expect a unified response of 44 plus countries across what at least the United States considers the Indo-Pacific. But I want to highlight here that in some sense, there is a very great alignment and convergence between key NATO and European responses and key U.S. allied responses in Asia. That is to say, Japan, ROK, Australia, and the strategic partnership of Singapore all allied very closely, both in their response to Ukraine and to sanctions. And therefore, one can argue, as I would, that in fact, while Asia as a whole may be fragmented in its response, 
um, the key allies and strategic partners in Asia were quite aligned with NATO and Europe on the response. Now, in Southeast Asia, we had, if you will, this phrase fragmented responses, generally cool responses from individual association of Southeast Asian nation states, uh, whether that be Indonesia or Malaysia, et cetera. Um, and of course, the one that has drawn the most attention is India. And I think um, the problem is not so much India's response, but the surprise by people in Washington at India's response. I would have expected nothing different. And so I'm a little bit puzzled why there are so much head scratching in Washington, because it depends on what your, if you will, irrational expectations of the India-US alignment are. And mine are very modest. India has great interest in aligning with the United States, but it just has no interest in being an ally of the United States. It performs a, um, I mean, I will caveat this title. I, I used both two words in my statement about the UN very carefully chosen, reformist and revisionist. On some areas, it is revisionist, seeking a restructuring of the Permanent Security Council. It is reformist and highly uh, interactive and supportive of the UN system generally uh, through the, the efforts, as Abdul quite rightly mentioned. On some economic issues also, India is revisionist. None of this will change. I think there are three fundamental issues arising out of Ukraine for Asia. Issue number one, will the United States response over the mid or longer term to shoring up European security implicate less attention or resources to Asia. Two, what will be the mid and long-term sustainable implications of Ukraine for the Russo-China relationship? And what will that mean for US policy in Asia? And third, I think that the, some have called it the weaponization of integration, the fragmentation or deglobalization and decoupling that this will lead to, how far will that go in an environment in which the key missing link of US Indo-Pacific strategy to date, though we understand it is forthcoming, is an economic strategy? And so what will be the implications? So let me conclude by saying, to my mind, it is a little early to tell what the longer term, I am conscious that we've had four major shocks just as we had the dollar shock and the Nixon shock on China in the 70s, we've had four shocks over three decades. One, the collapse of the Cold War. Two, 9-11. Three, the 97 financial crisis. And four, 2008 financial crisis in the United States primarily. And fifth, if you want to, Ukraine. With all due respect, I have seen no fundamental structural changes emanating out of the international system because of those first four shocks. Yes, in Europe, things change, but in Asia, very little change because of the end of the Cold War. Very little fundamentally changed. Two, nothing really changed because of 9 and 11 in Asia. Um, and the big change wasn't tied to any of those big structural shifts. For example, China's rise is not merely uh, an outgrowth of the end of the Cold War or of 9-11 or of the 97 financial crisis or the 2008 financial crisis. It is, if you will, an independent variable from those structural shifts. 
So my basic assessment is let's wait and see. Um, the Indo-Pacific will continue to have high resonance in the United States, both politically, structurally, diplomatically, economically. Um, but um, the core alliance system in Asia remains strong. Uh, the key uh, new developing tools, the Quad, AUKUS, and other elements remain quite strong. And third, the U.S. posture, both military, economic, diplomatic, also remain quite strong. So let me end there and, and thank you for the opportunity to, to engage in some comments. Thank you. Um, so next, Taku. Yes, well, it was a very comprehensive uh, set of points and issues, and I fully agree with um, you know, what, what he said. Um, so I don't really have much to add, except I think uh, when it comes to, if you could call it an Asian reaction, well, we call it the Japanese reaction, um, with respect to Russia and what Japan has done in the initial stages of, of sanctions, I don't think there's any turning back. So the relationship, I don't think is going to improve, at least not in the, the short term or intermediate term. I think it's going, I think there's an understanding within the Japanese government that the relationship with Russia is going to be frozen for quite some time to come. And in terms of Japan's policies towards Russia, um, I think um, in terms of Japan's alliance commitments, uh, Japan's notion of it being a member of the G7, um, and the fact that Prime Minister Kishida has outlined his realist diplomacy, um, I think it's going to stay pretty much as it is. So I think um, what we've seen in the early stages over the past, um, just over a month, um, I think month and a half, um, I think it's pretty much going to be uh, going to stay. I suppose what I might uh, want to add is that um, there might be some within Europe who say that what's happening in Ukraine is different from China and Taiwan. Um, when it comes to the Japanese government, what they're seeing in Ukraine is what has been said already, and that is they see China and Taiwan. I think that's what they're actually seeing. They're looking at the United States response um, in Ukraine, and they're going to be sort of second guessing how U.S. will respond if something were to happen in the Taiwan Strait. So Japan is looking very carefully. So, um, so for Japan, Ukraine is not so much something that is happening in Europe as it is really sort of a, it invokes a vision of what could possibly happen in its neighborhood. And I think that's what they're trying, really seeing. And perhaps with all the rhetoric that's been said over the past few days with Abe saying things about forward um, and attacking enemy, um, enemy bases where Kishida is saying, look, you know, what we're, our position, our, this government's position vis-a-vis -vis Russia is very different from what the Abe administration did. Um, it seems as if what Japan is saying with vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, I think needs to be said in the context of Japan's um, Japan's threat perception over China slash Taiwan. So there might be in the weeks to come, if not months to come, there might be some kind of a disconnect between Europe and Asia, for instance. Even you know, if the Europeans say, well, look, what's happening in Ukraine is different. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that China will do what the Russians are doing. I don't think it's something that the Japanese would necessarily agree to per se, because what they're seeing in Ukraine is potentially what could happen in vis-a-vis -vis China and Taiwan. So I'll leave it there, but there might be a potential for some kind of a disconnect between East and the West, if I, if I may. Thank you. Thank you, Taku. Um, so, uh, Atu, um, what are your views on what 
put the the sort of the future landscape. So thank you. And in in particularly in the Indo-Pacific and what India, which direction India might be moving towards. To uh, to uh, both panelists, Satu and Taku. I mean, they were brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed their analysis, and it informs mine. Um, I think uh, three things. Uh, in the interests of time, I'll be very, very, very brief. Three things. Uh, um, there have been shocks to the system. Um, there have been uh, things uh, such as uh, the end of the Cold War, 9-11, financial crisis, pandemic, and so on and so forth. But I really do believe this time it's different. And I see three changes. Um, coming forth. Number one, there will be a structural change to the global economy, and this will impact Asia. Um, number two, one of the aspects of this global, uh, this structural change will be deglobalization, which actually got kicked off, arguably, with the election of Donald Trump in the US. And I think uh, this deglobalization is going to change the equation, particularly for export-oriented small Southeast nations, Vietnam, um, Indonesia, Thailand, and so on and so forth. Uh, this is not to mention nations like Pakistan and Bangladesh, uh, which are not export-oriented, but which are very integrated in the world economy. Pakistan is a debtor state, and Bangladesh is uh, as, uh, a textiles exporting state. And Pakistan is already seeing the Ukraine uh, question cause rupture in its politics. So there, there will be a structural change, uh, um, number one. Um, number two, there will be increased deglobalization. And number three, the Russia-China axis is likely to emerge and is going to make the rest of Asia very nervous. And different nations are going to react differently to it. Um, and I'll get into each of them very, very briefly. Uh, the reason I think there'll be structural changes that for a lot of people um, uh, invested in the current financial system, the kicking out of Russia from the SWIFT system, the uh, seizing of central bank assets uh, is a bit of a scary proposition. Saudi Arabia is now talking about a petro-yuan trade, something they would have never conceived of uh, before this. Um, other countries are probably going to uh, have, uh, other countries are probably going to shift to some kind of uh, uh, exchange mechanism outside the dollar. And the um, uh, Western economies in particular have run huge deficits over the pandemic. And this shock where in you'll see, we are seeing inflation in oil, gas, food, fertilizers, uh, commodities such as nickel, aluminum, palladium, I could go on. Russia is the commodity supplier are going to cause havoc, particularly for poorer countries. Moving on to deglobalization, uh, that is going to proceed um, further. The pace is going to strengthen because people would want shorter supply chains and more national security. Um, so with that happening, Asia is going to suffer a lot because Asia bet on exports. So that is going to cause major challenge. And number three, the Russia-China access will make some countries move closer to the US, such as Taiwan, such as South Korea, such as perhaps even Japan, even though it may have disquiet. Other countries 
to 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 um, uh, hedge their bets a bit and and perhaps uh, um, uh, engage with China and avoid confrontation. India, of course, is making sure that Russia doesn't completely side with China, because if it does, in the case of a conflict, India will be defeated very quickly. Its military equipment comes from Russia. So the Russia factor is, sorry, the China factor is very key, in, key for India to engage with Russia. And, and uh, as uh, Satu said, it is too early to tell, but these are the broad uh, three themes uh, I foresee playing out. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. It was an honor to be on the same panel as all of you. It was a privilege to, to moderate uh, this panel with um, very diverse perspectives um, and uh, very informative. I hope this conversation continues. And I think there's a lot of comparing notes to be done between India, Japan and the United States for that matter. Thank you very much again to uh, Satu. Uh, Taku and Atu for uh, participating in this podcast. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fair Observer podcast in collaboration with the IFO Research Center, Osaka School of International Public Policy. I hope you can join us again in our next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>